You're listening to episode 8 of the Broken Meeple podcast. In today's show, we take a look at a couple of news items that have appeared in the last couple of weeks. We look at my first impressions of Ricochet Robots and Tashkala Arena of Legends. And finally, we're here with another top 5. This week, it's my top 5 cooperative games. I'm your host, Luke Hector. Thank you for listening and spreading the love for board games. Hello and welcome to episode 8 of the Broken Meeple podcast. Thank you for listening. We're going to start off with some quick news to begin with, and then we'll look at my first impressions a little later. But the highlight of this episode is my top 5 cooperative games that will be coming up in the later part. So without further ado, let's make a start. First up in the news this week is the game Smash Up. Now, in the last podcast, I hinted that there was a new expansion coming next year called Spies. Well, that wasn't entirely accurate. We've had some more information on this, and apparently it's now called Science Fiction Double Feature. It's due for release sometime in March 2014, and it will bring four new decks to the shuffle-building game. The four factions that are due to be brought in are Cyborg Apes, Super Spies, shapeshifters, and time travelers. Now, these sound like pretty good race ideas to me. However, what slightly worries me is that we are told that the box contains another one of those victory point token sheets, which, let's face it, we've got enough of them as it is now, and the rule book, and obviously the box and the four factions. But it doesn't hint as to the storage capabilities. Now, I'm a bit worried that this is going to be another one of those boxes the same size as Awesome Level 9000 and Cthulhu, which was big enough to hold the four factions, but that was about it. The main box that we got originally has been designed to hold two expansions worth on top of everything else, and I've brimmed mine to the full in order to accommodate them. Now, if we end up with four new factions in March 2014, I'm a little concerned that there's not going to be enough room to hold them in the base box. Well, there certainly won't be, for that matter. But I'm expecting that we'll end up having to have a second box to accommodate four new factions. Now, really, I don't think we need that many more factions for Smash Up. I mean, let's face it, there's enough as it is. But if you're going to bring out more, you need another storage box, AEG, because we can't have expansion boxes holding all the factions, because it will just become a nightmare to store and a nightmare to transport. So I'm looking forward to it next year, but I've just got that bit of a concern about storage. So it's not a problem if you missed out on one of the other expansions. I know some people didn't really take to Cthulhu that well, uh, but also level 9000 was received pretty well. So if you haven't bought one of those two expansions, you will have enough room to fit this set in the original box. But if, like me, you've been subject to completionist syndrome and you've gone and bought every single expansion for Smash Up, then storage could well be an issue with these. The main bit of news this week is regarding HeroQuest. Now, I mentioned before that it was going to get reproduced by a company called GameZone in Spain, and recently it even appeared on Kickstarter and made over 300,000 Canadian dollars on the first day alone. This was going to be popular, there was no doubt about that. However, we've got issues. Specifically, intellectual property right issues. It seems that the original company who first came up with HeroQuest, Moon Design, is arguing with GameZone Miniatures about the rights for the HeroQuest brand. As such, the Kickstarter is now being removed, and they're now in talks about hopefully agreeing some sort of compromise or some special deal in order so that HeroQuest can get reproduced. Unfortunately, that's about as much as we have on this. Uh, they're still in talks, so we won't know for more for certain until they get back to the gaming community on that. But I'm a little bit disappointed in this, because every time a good idea comes along, somebody comes and ruins it with intellectual property issues. Why can't people just let games be created, eh? I don't get it, but, uh, well, that's the way it is. So we'll have to effectively just wait and see on that and hopefully my childhood idol game can get reproduced by somebody i really don't care who reproduces it it can be game zone it can be moon design well actually saying that 
let's hope Games Workshop don't jump on the frame because then it'll cost about a million pounds and uh, everything will need painting and reassembly or something, which is like, oh, God, no. There's a reason why I stopped playing Warhammer in 40k. I cannot paint to save my life. But, oh well, we'll just have to wait and see on that one. And lastly, on gaming releases, Eldritch Horror has now hit stores nationwide. Now, Eldritch Horror is effectively a sister game to the Arkham Horror series, which, as you know, I'm a big fan of and have all the expansions for. Effectively, what happens with this game is that it takes place around the world as opposed to just within Arkham. But, effectively, the premise of the game is still the same. You have your investigators, you've got the Ancient One threatening to come and destroy the world, you have to go solve mysteries relating to that Ancient One, collect clues, fight monsters, work together, and effectively stop the apocalypse from happening. It sounds about the same, but it's supposed to be more streamlined in terms of its rules, and it does have a few changes here and there. I'm hoping I'll get to check it out at some point soon, because it's been quite the talk of my local clubs. I'm a little bit concerned about how this will affect my relationship with the original Arkham Horror games because, after all, I've invested quite a lot of money and time in those games and I do enjoy them. I don't want Eldritch Horror to suddenly come by and say, right, this makes Arkham Horror redundant and ruin the past few months that I've spent building that game up. Um, from what I've heard from other people, it's apparently different enough so that they can work together. So, if that's the case, then I hope I can enjoy Eldritch Horror and acquire it and keep it alongside my Arkham collection. But, we'll have to wait and see when I get a chance to play that, as I suspect I will wait for someone to bring it to the club before I grab it myself. Though saying that, this is me. So, I wouldn't be surprised if you heard that I'd bought it at some point on a whim in the near future. It's time for the first impressions, and we've got two new games this week. First up, I'm going to start with something that I haven't really reviewed anywhere on my blog, or in my first impressions as of yet, so this is going to be a new one. It's called Ricochet Robots, and it fits the abstract strategy games category. Now, I like abstract games. I haven't reviewed any so far, and at the moment I don't own any, but I do enjoy them. My reason for not necessarily owning them is that they tend to be sort of two-player games mainly, and I struggle to be able to get those to the table with two players. Normally I have to play in large groups. Also, a lot of people I know aren't necessarily into abstract games, so they tend to be things that I enjoy to play, but don't get a chance to buy them. However, Ricochet Robots, designed by Alex Randolph, essentially, this is a really bare-bones game. It's got a simple grid board with four robot 3D models on them of different colours. On the board, there are various metal walls around the edge and dotted around the board in various places, which represents a solid wall, effectively. Now, the idea with this is that you will have tokens that show symbols that match other squares on the board. And when a symbol is drawn, you and all the other players simultaneously have to think of the shortest route that the particular colour robot can get to that space. Now, the way that the robots can move is that they can only move in a straight line, but they can ricochet off all the walls and other robots. So they can't go diagonal unless you have a specific side of the board. It is double-sided or modular. Uh, but mainly it's straight lines. While you're thinking up the shortest route, so is everyone else, and somebody can call out how many moves they reckon it will take from all the robots moving, you have to count every single robot and every single ricochet as one move. Once somebody quotes a number, a timer is then activated for one minute that gives everyone else the chance to beat that number. Once that's sorted out, then the person who has the lowest number tries to do the moves. If he gets it right, he gets the token, which is worth one point. If he fails, then the next highest number gets a chance to make their moves. It sounds quite simplistic, but boy, is it a bit of a brain buster. You have to really think ahead as to, right, there's that robot, there's the symbol. How can I reach it? Do I start from the robot and work forwards? Do I start from the end and work backwards? And even then, that's just with one robot. You've then got to think, well, that robot can't get there by himself. Right, how can I get this robot into a position so that he can ricochet off him to get into there? It's really great the way that it makes you think. And 
I ended up playing this last Portsmouth session, and not to winning the boat, it was a bit of a whitewash, I did win by quite a margin, but I just enjoyed how you've got the speed elements that you are competing against everyone else at the same time, so you can't just sit there forever and just go, mm, I'll think of the best one there, you have to think fast, but it's just great the way that this simple little game, which is effectively a puzzle, can be turned into a game that everyone enjoyed, four of us enjoyed this quite a lot, Effectively, it tests the mind, gives enjoyment, there's plenty of competition, and I was quite surprised to find that this was published before the millennium, and it's also ranked 365 on BoardGameGeek. That's very high for a game, particularly an abstract strategy game. So, this was quite a surprise to me. I, I saw it played in a different Portsmouth session, and I wasn't sure what to make of it when I just saw the bare-bones board, because, I mean, it's not a pretty board. Let's put it that way. This is four colour robots, a few tokens, and a bare white grid board with a few walls dotted on it. So it's not exactly the most, in, you know, prettiest of games to look at, but that's not really the point of it. The great other thing about it is that it's a modular board. So you have to put four pieces together, a bit like a jigsaw puzzle, to make the board. So the walls can be in all different locations, and same with the robots on each game. And even the robot's placement to begin with is done randomly. A player literally just chooses a space and puts that robot there. And then on certain parts of the board, there's even angled walls. So they can, particular robots can rebound at an angle across the board in order to reach where they're going. We didn't play with those angled boards as much because uh, the lady who owned the game was trying to teach us it on a simple level. But boy, I can imagine that when you're using angled walls as well it's just gonna hurt <laughs> you know trying to think of this sort of stuff but i know i'd be interested to try it particularly as after doing quite well with just the straight lines these are the sort of games that i wish schools would use i don't know whether schools these days actually use board games as a method of teaching i know that tom vassell in the dice tower he likes to use board games as a method of teaching he did a lot with that sort of thing in career i don't know if in the uk that tends to happen as much and i think it really should Board games can teach a lot to kids about different strategies and tactics and even just exercising the brain in general. I mean, people use those Sudoku puzzles, which I can't stand, but, you know, they use them as a way of testing the brain and just giving it a bit of an exercise every now and again. This is a perfect game to do that, and kids can play it as well. It's recommended for years 10 and up, but I don't see why a younger kid couldn't try it. Granted, maybe they'd struggle to think too many moves ahead, but, you know, they might like it, and they'll like the idea of a robot bouncing around all over the place. Uh, we played it with four players, but apparently you can play it with up to 15. I'm not quite sure how that's supposed to work. Um, I mean, maybe you've got to play in teams, but I would not want to imagine playing this with more than six, to be honest, because if you've got 10-plus players around the side of a board, that's not that big trying to quickly think of a load of moves and then shouting them out. It's going to get a bit chaotic, but I don't know. It could work, but personally, I just think four to six players, it's a sweet spot for most games, so we'll keep it at that. But that's Ricochet Robots. Probably won't find its way in my collection, for reasons I stated before about abstract games and my local players, but it's a good game, and I would happily play it again if someone brought it to the table. So, give it a shot. And my second first impression is a new game to the board gaming community called Tashkalar Arena of Legends. This was only released at Essen, I believe, this year. Uh, but it's had a bit of a shaky start in its upbringing. It's effectively come out, and everyone was raving about it to start with, but they weren't too sure whether it would make the cut or not. It's effectively a rehash of an original game called Go from early days. Uh, Z-Man is the publisher, and effectively what you have is a, another grid board, with, and you have tokens for your particular faction, of which there are four, and you place your tokens on the board in such a way that you can make patterns with the tokens. When you've made a particular pattern, you can then summon cards from your hand, which represent usually one-use-only special characters. So think of it like you've got your basic men, then you've got your superior combat men, and then when you've got the pattern arranged, you might summon a time mage or a knight captain or a 
Dryad or something like that. It depends on the faction. But you can get various cool things for each faction and there are legendary creatures that everybody can summon but you only have one of them at a time and these require very intricate patterns but they can be anything from big dragons to titans to one that I particularly like which is the hell bull literally a bull on fire that's pretty awesome and <laughs> even the picture is pretty awesome um, that's probably one of the things I would credit this game actually the artwork is very good the cards themselves are very good not the best card stock but the artwork is just lovely it's got a lovely picture on there bright colorful really detailed really brings out the monster and the theme and the patterns that you have to make are clearly laid out so it's easy enough for new players to get into my beef with this game that i had which it depends on your group but this is one of the biggest games that is prone to analysis paralysis that i have ever seen you could be thinking for ages about, do I put this guy there and do this combo? Do I do this instead? How do I get this pattern? Oh, he's just messed up my move by putting his token there. How do I now recover? And there's surprisingly a lot to think about, which is good. It keeps you involved. But when it's not your turn, you could find yourself sitting there waiting to see whether your plan can go into action because as soon as somebody does a move that interferes suddenly your whole plan just goes completely out the window and you have to now come up with something on the fly which again means you're going to have to think which means more analysis paralysis so you can see where I'm coming from here we played it with uh, three friends of mine and I know two of them in particular are quite prone to analysis paralysis so there was a lot of downtime between turns for a four player game so that is a bit of a problem that I do find. However, I do enjoy it, and I reckon that when people know the game better, or if you're playing it with, say, two or three people, probably I think this is better as a two-player game, actually, than a three or four. But I reckon two competent players could get through this relatively quickly. Now, you've got two separate no modes in this game that you can play. One is just traditional deathmatch, which is just beat everything up and get points. Now, I personally don't like that one. It's just too much of a brawl and you don't feel there's a huge amount of strategy to it. I liked what we played though, which was the mission mode. As well as killing the opponents, which you have to do in order to stop them building up, you also have objectives that are randomized at the start of the game, and only three of them are laid out at once, and they give certain victory points, which you have to earn a certain amount to win, but they revolve around you accomplishing certain objectives in the game. Now these can be anything from surrounding an opponent's token with seven of your own, uh, conquering as much of the center part of the board as possible, uh, summoning so many monsters a turn, occupying particular green or red spaces which are dotted around the place, or just having a combination of creatures like a legendary and a couple of superior for example. And those are really good. I like the way that that has to you now have to vary your strategy as the game progresses because you might be going for a particular objective but then so is everyone else and if someone else nicks it you've then got to think oh, right I better get something else or if you are aiming for a particular one you better work out how to get it quickly before someone else nicks it so and you still have to kill each other you know in the end they're taking up space you have to get rid of them in order to get the space you need to set up your patterns so it's not like the deathmatch aspect is being taken out entirely so I'd say the mission mode is better than Deathmatch, and if I play Tascalar again, which I'm sure I will because one of my good friends owns the game, I would probably emphasise that I would only want to play the mission mode, because I think that just works better. It gives you more to think about than just simply, right, kill everyone. Whoopee. You know, it's, it's not that entertaining for me. That being said, it does seem to be getting a little bit of flack lately, because the theme is not that strong in it. At the moment, there's it's basically monsters fighting in a Colosseum arena. And to be honest, you could take that out and replace it with anything. You could make it uh, knights fighting at Agincourt or something, for example, and it would still be the exact same game and probably work in much the same way. I prefer it like this when you have got lots of monsters and various characters. But effectively, yeah, the theme is a little tacked on. It's not to be bought for that particular reason. Uh, the other beef I've got with it is that there's only four factions, which I'm sure they'll bring out expansions for this game to solve in the future. However, the four factions are a bit weird, because you've got barbarians, which are effectively just humans. Then you've got these, I think they're called tree folk, or um, I'm not entirely certain what they're called, but effectively you're talking dryads, ents, elves, that type of thing. 
But then you've got two human factions, which are exactly the same. They're effectively just knights and uh, foot soldiers and the occasional mage and stuff like that, bureaucrats. And I didn't quite get why there was two like that. I mean, you could argue, I suppose, that the idea of that was so that you could have a two-player game that was perfectly balanced, which is not a bad idea, I suppose. But then, why not just have five factions and have one like that? So you can have more variety. And even then, barbarians aren't that dissimilar from the humans. They've got slightly different creatures, and they do have a bear that they can summon, which is pretty cool. But other than that, it's just humans again. You know, the elf people, and all the dryads and trees and kind of like that, they seem a lot more fun to use, purely because their creatures are much more interesting, and even the way they function is more interesting. You know, I was playing one of the human factions, the basic knights and mage and that, and even though I managed to win the game, I still felt a bit envious of the two players playing the other races, because I thought, I'm just playing humans. And this is one thing with me, if I'm playing a fantasy game, I hate, with a passion, playing humans. If you're going to give me a fantasy game where your imagination is the only limit to what creatures you can play as a race, why would I want to play humans? <laughs> that defeats the point. I don't play humans in Blood Bowl, I don't play humans in Warhammer, in Terra Mystica, I have been mainly going for the more obscure races, like the Darklings and the Mermaids and stuff like that, to begin with, before I muster onto the basic humans, like the Nomads and, I suppose, the Dwarfs to an extent. But uh, I'm alright with things like Dwarfs and Gnomes, you know, they are still fantasy-esque races, but, you know, just a bog-standard human whoopee, you know, I can play other games to play a human. You know, Dungeons & Dragons is another example. I hate being forced to play the human just because they're generally better in D&D stat-wise or getting certain feats. I much prefer to play a weird and wonderful race if I can help it. But I digress. It's just a nitpick and I'm sure expansions will solve this problem. So Tashkalar, it's a game I'll happily play again, but I think you are going to have to choose your opponents wisely and go with... Um, a group that's not prone to analysis paralysis to get the most enjoyment out of this. So that's Tashkalar, Arena of Legends. And it's time for another top chart. It's about time I featured one of these actually, because the last one was the top three games I can't stand, as in game categories. Um, I won't go into what that was, you'll have to listen to that podcast to find out more. But I'm now going to start doing top fives more often because everybody likes a top ten, top five. I like all of the Dice Tower top tens. I love uh, Nostalgia Critics top elevens when he does those. So it's always great to give your top five and have opinions on them. But I will say people will probably ask why is it top five, not top ten. Well, the reason for that is unlike people like Tom Vassell, I don't get to play 1,000 games a year as a minimum always. So I don't have as much exposure to that level of game range that some of these other people do. So to come up with top 10 would be maybe applicable for certain categories, but it's certainly not going to be for a lot of them. So I think that it's more fair to do a top 5. And also I think top 5 is harder to make than the top 10, because a lot of the time you might have only played 15 games of a particular category, and you've only got to get rid of the 5 that you just didn't fancy. With top five, though, you could play a fair few games in that category that were good, and you have to think harder about how to come up with the top five. But effectively, the format's going to work like this. There will be the top five, which I'll go from bottom to top in order and give a brief description about each game and why I enjoy the game that much. Um, but I'm also going to give one or two, maybe three, honourable mentions on each chart, which are basically going to be ones that didn't make the top five, but are ones that I think you should still check out. So without further ado, let's begin the top five cooperative games. Number five. Pandemic. Oh god, I'm going to get flack for this, I suspect. Why is this not much higher on your list? Well, it's number five out of all the co-op games i played, so give me a break, it's still pretty good. But my issue with Pandemic is that the alpha gamer syndrome, which is where one guy kind of dictates how the game's going to go as you play, is a bit more prominent in this game, and this is one thing that would put me off a co-op game. However, the mechanics of Pandemic 
are still pretty solid. You're effectively trying to save the world, which is a great theme, from a disease. And the disease represented by cubes pop up in various locations and you and your other band of people, I suppose, I mean, the researchers, scientists, that kind of thing, have to go around the board and keep the diseases at a certain level so that epidemics don't break out whilst trying to cure them at the same time. Now, I still enjoy this game, but mainly because of the recent expansion in the lab. Beforehand, I probably wouldn't have put this on my top five, but in the lab has now brought the theme up to level 11 with regards to the way this game plays, because now you have the lab board where instead of simply going, I cure this disease, here's a cube and five cards, you now have, yes, you have to play cards, but you now have a lab board where you have to put cubes in various parts of it and move them around and double them or separate them, that kind of thing and work on specific cures. So as well as all the normal actions of going around the world and flying around and disposing of cubes, you now also have the lab. So the lab is what's brought this game up for me. However, I prefer to play this game on the iPad. The recent iPad iteration of Pandemic is very good, and I recommend you download it if you have any interest in Pandemic. It looks exactly like the 2013 reprint, and is pretty solid as a solo game against the iPad, effectively. I don't know if you can play it online, I don't think you can, but it's good enough for me, just as, oh, I'm bored, I fancy a bit of Pandemic. You can play as many investigators as you like, and I think at the moment it's only got the base game in it which is a bit of a shame, but obviously at some point they'll release on the brink and in the lab, I suspect, for it if they haven't already. So with that said, I will buy those upgrades and I reckon it will be one of my favourite games to play on the iPad. But it's just hard to really get it to the table and play it that much when it's like various players because the Alpha Gamer Syndrome is a little off-putting. Okay, it's not going to happen in every game of Pandemic. I'm just saying that it's more prone to it. So that's number five, Pandemic. Number four, Marvel Legendary. Now, when it comes to theme, this one just oozes theme when it comes to the superheroes from the Marvel Universe. You start off as Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. effectively, and it's a deck building game. So all you've got is a few basic S.H.I.E.L.D. agents of various types. Um, but as you build your deck up over the game, you can recruit all the Marvel heroes that you can think of that have been released into your deck in order to come up with different combinations and fight off the villains. Now you've got everyone from Iron Man to Hulk to Deadpool. You've now got the Fantastic Four that have been released recently. Uh, you've got a Rogue and various other X-Men, Wolverine, for example. It's just a really great way to have all these heroes at your disposal. And it's a cooperative game, so you are working with three other people who are building their own decks with their own heroes. And you are stopping a master villain, which could be anything from Galactus to Loki to Doctor Doom. There's basically a few others, like major villains from the universe. And the scenarios are different as well. One minute there taking bystanders as hostage and you have to go save them. Others, they're building like a doomsday machine or something. Uh, there's lots of different ones that play. So the combinations of this game are just about endless now. And that's just from the base game. Let alone the dark expansion that they released after that. And now recently the Fantastic Four, which has given you all the Fantastic Four to have as separate heroes, as well as other villains to put in the mix. Normally, I'm not a huge fan of deck-building games. There aren't that many that I like, but this is probably my favourite of the bunch. Yes, it is a deck-building game, but just all those superheroes and all the combinations you make, you really do feel like you are beating up these villains as your favourite superhero. And to be quite honest, I mean, I actually broke the game, I think, in my first play of it. <laughs> quite by accident, I assure you. But I thought, oh, well, let's go for Iron Man. I wanted him in my deck. And basically, he likes you to draw cards on a regular basis, so you can have a nice big hand to do stuff with. Now, I thought, well, what can I combine this with? Uh, who's nobody going after? Hmm, Rogue. Let's see what you do. Rogue from the X-Men. And what I inadvertently did was create a deck that not only allowed me to draw a million cards a turn, pretty much, it also allowed me to clone cards that were already on the field, clone cards that were in my hand, and once I got the big version of Rogue, also clone cards off the top of everybody else's deck. 
And this, in the space of one turn, I could basically go, right, I'll draw three cards. Clone, draw more three cards. And I'll just clone this one as well, two more cards. And, oh, can you take the top card of your deck, please, lads? Uh, let's see, I'll have uh, Deadpool's uh, weird and wonderful ability there. I'll have Hulk's mass power. I'll nick uh, Wolverine's uh, healing while I'm at it. And basically, I was just able to steamroll the entire game with this weird combination that basically made Loki wet his pants, effectively, because he started off pretty well, and we were having trouble killing some of them, and I got off to a slow start, because like, I'm drawing cards, but I've got no power, I've got no decent heroes to fight with, and then for some reason, something just snapped, and I just steamrolled the entire load of villains and Loki, and just beating him up several times. It's a bit like Hulk, when Hulk grabs him in the Avengers and pummels Loki repeatedly and then goes away going puny god. You know, that's a great scene from it. I pretty much did the same with Loki in this game. Not necessarily with the Hulk. Instead, I was Iron Man. I'd just come along, do like Robbie Downey Jr.'s speech, and then pick him up and start peeing him around. <laughs> it, was like, it was just so weird how I managed to break the game. So it was a bit of a landslide victory. But I had a lot of fun with this game. And I've been so tempted to add it to my collection. I'm very tempted. I'm deck builders are hit and miss with me, but I'm very tempted to add this to my repertoire purely because it's a great theme. So give it a try if you have not already Marvel Legendary. Number three. Flashpoint Fire Rescue. This is the first game I ever reviewed on my blog, and it's probably one of the first games since my reboot into the gaming genre that I decided to purchase. What attracted me to it is that I read up on a lot of these co-op games, and they were usually like, you know, you have to fight various monsters and stuff like that. But Flashpoint was literally, you are a group of firemen. You have a burning building, you have to get people out of it. So I thought, hmm, okay, simple theme, uh, fairly cheap game, looks nice and will be something a little bit easier for people to get into rather than, you know, fantasy monsters are coming and we must destroy them. It's more a case of we are firefighters and we must save these people. And for some reason a dog and a cat. Not quite sure why. But the game itself is relatively simple to teach. You've got a family and an experienced version. And the great thing I like about this one, as well as its simplicity, is the randomness of how the fire breaks out. Now, some people don't like the game for that reason, and I really don't get it. I don't get that, because with certain games like Pandemic, you can almost puzzle it out to an extent, and that is why Pandemic was lower on the list as well. You know, puzzling it out is a bit of a letdown. But with Flashpoint, you can't really puzzle it out, because the fire could spread in such a random way. You roll dice on a grid to say where the smoke starts appearing and where fire happens, and if you happen to roll the same space where there's already a fire, then you get explosions which blow away doors and walls so the building collapses. And it's great how you could be in control one minute and suddenly, oh my god, and you know, the fire spawns up somewhere next and causes mass havoc. Because that's how fire works. You can't puzzle out a fire, you know. When do firefighters stand outside the building and go, right, hmm, top floor's on fire, I reckon that it will come down the stairs and then probably into the living room, you know. Those two rooms are safe, they won't get fire for a while, so we can leave those, you know. The screams from there, yeah, we'll get back to those later. You know, that never happens, does it? Um, the only nitpicks I have with it is probably the vehicles that you drive around the building are a little bit weird on the theme-wise. And also, even though the board is double-sided, there's not a huge amount of difference between them, and the game is ripe for expansions. Now, I will stress, I have not tried any of the expansions for Flashpoint, because they were all out of print when I got the game. However, with the recent release of Extreme Danger... Uh, is it Extreme Danger or Dangerous Waters? I can't remember. Um, I believe Dangerous Waters is the newest one yet to come out. And there were second-story urban structures and... Dangerous Waters that came out previously. I'm waiting for them all to get reprinted and released at retail because I missed out on the Kickstarter, unfortunately. Um, but when they come out, I am going to stack those up and I look forward to Flashpoint maybe even bumping up to number one. Who knows? I reckon these expansions will give the game a lot more legs for it to run on. But even at the moment, it's still one of my favourite co-op games and a lot of people have asked me to bring it to the table and I hope to do so a bit more often lately. I haven't been playing many co-ops, I've been mostly into big Euros. So I think it's time the co-ops hit the table more often 
Maybe in a couple of weeks. I've got to bring Caverner yet and get the review on that sorted during December. So certainly I'm going to get it back to the table soon. And I look forward to the expansions. But really, don't underestimate the theme and the mechanics of Flashpoint Fire Rescue. Give it a try. I'm sure you'll love it. Number two. Ghost Stories. Now, Ghost Stories, when I first played this, I have never played such a tense and difficult co-op game in my life. The game involves you playing four monks who have to defend the village from all these different ghosts and ghouls that are invading with one baddie, I forget his name, um, controlling everything. And effectively, once you've killed enough ghosts, he will then appear and then you beat him up. But the game looks gorgeous. Every bit of artwork on the tile boards, on the cards, on the tokens, everything is so nicely detailed and thematic. It really does look gorgeous. It doesn't even take up that much space. It's just a three by three tile board with um, a couple of extra bits around the side. So it doesn't take up a lot of space on your pub table. But boy, was this a tense game when I played this for the first time. It just... The go- literally you start off and maybe for the first turn or two you're like ah yeah this is easy you know yeah bring it on and then by turn three and a little bit on you're just like okay they're coming uh, alright let's fight over them <laughs> so we're just about magic and then by the, like turn five and six it's like please stop coming <laughs> they just really they just swarm you and you have to think hard but not like analysis paralysis level because you're working together everyone can chuck in ideas so the game plays out quite quickly but you have to think carefully about your moves. And yeah, okay, there's an element of luck to it because you've got to roll the dice in order to see whether you beat the ghoul or not. But you can mitigate that with the tokens and how many dice you roll and like what ghoul you're going up against. Uh, so it's, it's wonderfully thematic in that sense. But it's just bright to look at. And yes, it is very difficult. I mean, this game, literally, you get the box, you open the box in front of you, and all of a sudden, ow, 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 you know, it's already slapping you in the face before you've even had a chance to lay it out and start playing. It's quite tricky, and that's just on basic um, initiation level. I think there's like three or four other difficulties in this, including hell difficulty. Hell? Trust me, you play initiation difficulty, and then look at what hell difficulty involves. And I just think that if you play this game, you are nothing but a masochist. Because there is no way I can think you can possibly beat this game on hell. It's that hard. But despite being hard, it's a good challenge. And that's what I like. I like a good challenge. Okay, if it was impossible, I wouldn't like it. But it is beatable. And we came very close in that first game. To the point where there was only two of us left. And I actually sacrificed myself to give the strongest player in the group one last chance to beat the baddie. Unfortunately, you didn't roll what you needed. But it was worth a try. And we were just tense from start to finish. It's so addictive. And you'll want to play it again and again just so you can beat the stupid guy. And... Even on the iPad, it's quite a good iteration as well. It's not. I think the board game beats the iPad version because the iPad's got weird sound effects, which are just meh. And I think the cooperative nature of the game is brought out more in the board version than it is the iPad because the iPad you're just playing against the computer. But with the players around you all going, what are we going to do this? Should we sacrifice you or I'll come to you later? You know, I'm dealing with this first, but no, I need help. I'm going to die. Fine! You know, it's, it's really great the way this game plays, and I'm this close to getting it in my collection as well. Particularly if I can try the White Moon expansion, which I've heard good things about as well. Not the cheapest game in the world, but I think worth every penny if you like co-op games. Give this a try. Ghost Stories. And finally, number one. Do I really need to say what my number one is? You probably have guessed by now what my number one is. Okay, I'll give you a f- couple more seconds to do it. Three, two, one. Yeah, I'm sure you're right. It's Arkham Horror. Uh, you know, I've talked about this game enough, and I spent the entirety of October literally draining myself to the bone to review every single expansion for it. So I think you could have probably guessed ahead of time this was going to be my number one co-op game. 
But what brings this game to me is just the theme and immersion that this game provides. Once you've got various expansions, you don't even have to go as mad as I did and buy every single expansion. I mean, look at my reviews on the blog during October. You'll see what I think of each expansion. And at the final Miskatonic University expansion, you'll see my top list of which expansions I think you should get in order and which ones you could probably avoid. So you don't have to buy every single one. Just buy one or two of the big boxes, maybe. Uh, maybe one or two of the small ones. And then you're pretty set for a while. And even the base game's got a fair amount in it. But I do think that if you buy multiple expansions, you should get Miskatonic. So yes, it is a bit more of an expensive game. And that would be my main nitpick with this game, that some people will have difficulty getting into it because it is expensive. But it's worth it. There are so many cards I have for location encounters and mythos and other worlds that you never play the same game twice now, regardless of which ancient one you're fighting or which herald you use or which board you use even. And a lot of the mechanics can be incorporated into every game. Some of them are brought in into different games and you can even tailor it to a particular theme. I mean, what I tend to do is the base game with maximum one big and one small expansion for the story. Yes, I bring in the various small bits from other ones like the relationship cards and various other tokens and stuff that, you know, are easy enough to incorporate. But in terms of the story and the Mephos cards, I stick entirely to one big and one small. Max. Sometimes even less. Maybe just one big. Maybe just one small. Because the story element is brought out so much more if you do that. I know some people like to play Epic Arkham Horror, which is effectively stick every single expansion in one game. But trust me, you are going to need a spare weekend to play that. And you are going to take... Uh, you're going to pull your hair out trying to set it up and put it away. So that's not the way I would recommend playing it. So that's my two cents on that one. But every card, you've got a paragraph of text to write and... Sorry, to write, to read. And every single encounter you do just immerses you in it. It's a different... You're playing out your own story throughout the entire game. And things like the relationship cards and like the... the injuries and madness things you can pick up and various other things even the weapons and items you acquire you're telling the story of your character that has its own backstory that develops over time and i mean the artwork in the game is really good as well granted there's a lot of text to read but where there's pictures they're very creepy pictures especially the ancient one cards they're really weird in some respects the, I forget their name, but the one that resembles a spider or kind of like an old lady's face on the front. I swear that gives me nightmares. That's, you know, I'm already arachnophobic. To see that ancient one is like, right, you must die. <laughs> you know, I must make it my quest to beat that ancient one. Unfortunately, she wiped the floor with me in the last one, so that didn't go down too well. But I will beat her. <laughs> I must make it my solemn vow that I will beat that spider ancient one at some point. But the game is not too difficult to win. You, know, you can beat it. I mean, yeah, it's not like a push-through, a walkover or anything like that. And you can make the game slightly harder just by changing one or two house rules. But it's so good the way it plays. And you've even got fan variants all over the place to spice up the variety even more. There's so much you can do in the game. Yes, it takes a while to set up, but you can work around that if you just come up with a system. I've turned my boxes into a kind of like a filing system for all the cards so they're easy enough to do and you don't even have to take them out of the box when setting up. That cuts the setup time by a lot. And also use things like fishing tackle boxes or Plano boxes if you live in the US for storing the tokens and distributing them out. So there are ways to get around that, but Arkham Horror is just a story in a box. It's the horror story that you want as a co-op, and I don't know what I'll think of Eldritch Horror. Like I said, I'm worried that Eldritch Horror might end up being better than this game, and if it is, then what will that mean for Arkham Horror? But I would like it to be good, but so different that I can keep both. That would be nice. You know, there are one or two things about the new Eldritch Horror game that are filling me with a little bit of concern as to whether I'll like it for that or not. But I can't see myself getting rid of Arkham Horror ever. It's just so much fun to just sit down and play that with... You don't even need that many people, just two or three that have a couple of investigators each, or just a free player with one each. 
I mean, I like bringing this out on my table as a solo venture. If I've got a spare evening, I've got all the stuff laid out and I just control three investigators and I try to battle the engine one myself. Maybe with a bit of soundtrack just in the background to make it more atmospheric, you know. Okay, I'm a bit sad in that respect. But, you know, oh, well, come on, give me a break. Last Night on Earth had a rubbish soundtrack, did it? And, well, pff, funny enough, that's a bit of a co-op game. And if you've been listening to my podcast, you'll know exactly where that would go on my uh, top my top million list. Somewhere down in the uh, bottom of the million. You know, <laughs> I don't like that game. But that's Arkham Horror, my number one cooperative game. Give it a try. Trust me, you'll love it. So that's my top five cooperative games. Just to give a couple of honourable mentions that I would like to put forward. First up is Hanabi, which is a very cheap, very easy to acquire, but very popular co-op card game, which actually won the Spiritus Lars, I think, uh, last year, uh, which was a bit of a surprise, I must admit. But it didn't make my top five, because I don't find it that exciting as a co-op game. It's a bit like a puzzle co-op game. So there's not much of a theme, well, not much of a theme, there's no theme. Um, but... And I think co-op games should really be thematic for them to make my top list. However, I will give Hanabi credit because it's such a unique idea. You have a selection of cards in front of you that only your opponents... um, I'm so used to playing conflict games at the moment. um, That only your fellow players can see. And you have to give clues to other players about what they have in their hands so that you can play the right number or colour at the right time. You can only give out so many clues before you run out... And if you put one foot wrong, you lose. It's just such a unique idea that for once you have a hand of cards that you don't know about. And one of the funniest things in this game is the fact that everybody's mentality is to pick up a card and look at it straight away. So to get into the habit of picking it up and not looking at it is actually harder than beating the game itself. So it always causes a bit of a laugh when that happens. But I recommend giving Hanabi a try and see what you think. It's not... Exciting enough to make my top list because I do like thematic games. But, like I say, give it a try and I'm sure you'll probably enjoy it. The second honourable mention I will give is Shadows of a Camelot, which looks gorgeous when you set up on the table. I mean, anything by Days of Wonder looked gorgeous on the table. Bright colours and beautiful components. It's a very simple co-op game, so you can teach it in families and to new gamers. And it was the first one to introduce, I believe, the traitor aspect to co-op games, where there might be someone working behind the scenes. And that just makes you suspicious of everyone, which is a great feeling. Uh, My only beef with Shadows, why it doesn't make my top list, is that it's a bit simplistic for my liking. Uh, Effectively, you have various quests to complete, but you are just playing poker hands, effectively. You know, you need one to five, you need four, four, three, three, two, two on another one. You're playing a card down on the grail over time. So it's, the quests don't feel that thematic to me. You know, it just gets a little bit boring for me after a while, just constantly playing poker hands. But that being said, it looks gorgeous, it is still fun, and you've got that very good uh, camaraderie of cooperating with your fellow players, yet you've still got that hidden traitor who can just show up and screw you over if you're not expecting him. However, be careful when you start accusing him, because if you get it wrong, you could cost your people to the game, which I might have inadvertently done at one point. We'll keep that between ourselves. But anyway, Shadows Over Camelot is the second honourable mention. And finally, the next honourable mention I would give is Forbidden Desert. Um, I suppose you could include Forbidden Island in this because they're pretty similar in that respect, but I've only played the desert version. The Forbidden Desert is a simple game with tiles on the board and you are effectively stranded with your fellow passengers in the desert and you have to brave sandstorms and keep yourself alive with water whilst locating all the bits of your ship so you can build it and get off. Now... It's a simple game to explain, but not the easiest to win. I mean, it's pretty nasty to you on basic difficulty, and you can make it worse for yourself. But it's what I'll give mention to this game is that it's a simple idea, but challenging, still looks nice, the components are really good, and 
you have to cooperate. You cannot just go as a lone ranger because you, it's very tense as trying to keep alive with water and braving and clearing away all the sand. It does seem like the game is deliberately just trying to screw you over every opportunity sometimes, depending on how the cards are drawn. You could just end up with a bad run of cards that completely ruins your day. Um, and the game is a little bit simplistic for me. However, it is a good game and one that I would probably recommend if you're teaching kids a cooperative game. So for that reason, I would give it an honourable mention saying that you should give it a try if you haven't already and make up your mind, particularly if you're part of a family and you have board game sessions in that respect. For me, it's a game I'll play, but it's not one I would own. I prefer, like I say, those on my top five list. So give it a try, Forbidden Desert or Forbidden Island. And that's it for episode 8 to the Broken Meeple podcast. That seemed like a bit of a long session, I must admit. So I thank you for listening and keeping up with the blog. Uh, if you look on the blog in recent days, you'll notice that I have put up more session reports for my Southampton and Portsmouth gaming groups where I explain my feelings towards certain games and explain about what games were played and just basically tell a story of what happened at the club. My most recent review is Spirium, the 2013 released light Euro game with a surprising amount of depth. Check out my review as to what I think of that, either on the blog or on Board Game Geek. Upcoming reviews at the moment, the most impending ones will be Survive Escape from Atlantis, the 30th anniversary edition, and also the expansions to King of Tokyo. Um, I'm trying to review the expansions separately to the base game whenever possible, just to spread the load out and also so I don't get lumbered with like a huge review for multiple games. It can be a little bit weird for people to read. You know, long reviews are already quite hard to read all the way through, but to go over several expansions gets quite cumbersome as well when you're writing and not to mention reading them as well. So the expansions for King of Tokyo are going to come up soon, so is Survive in December. Reviews, I have not decided what I'm going to review as such during December. However, the biggest highlight that I guarantee I will review in December is Caverna Cave Farmers by Yuri Rosenberg. I have bought the game, I have played a couple of games solo, I have played a game two-player with a friend, and I intend to take it to my next Portsmouth session to play at least a four or five-player with the game to get more into it there. But so far, I am loving it and have a serious worry that Agricola might be getting replaced. We'll have to find out more on that as time goes on. But for now, that was episode 8 of the Broken Meeple podcast. Thank you for listening. I'll catch up with you on episode 9 in the future. Thank you for listening and spreading the love for board games. Take care now. Bye-bye.